ushers are continuing with our giving, um, we wanted to take some time to um, celebrate and uh, do something great at Westside. We're fortunate to partner with a number of ministries um, here in town from the John 316 program. Um, we even run our own um, redemption group that meets on Monday nights. And um, we have a heart for people. Yeah, amen, right? right? Um, we have a heart for people and for brokenness. And one of the ministries that we partner with is called Crossroads. And um, I talked to Mr. Jimmy Wagner. He's actually preaching um, at another church. But we've got a crew of guys who come and who hang out on Sunday mornings. And if you love our lawn and how good it looks, these guys take care of that for us and everything. But I want to invite Terry and Vince up. If you guys could come up here real quick. Um, these these two guys, yeah, come on. Stand right here, man. I love these guys, and they got great haircuts, you know what I mean, right? Um, but what's exciting today is, um, is that these guys are going to graduate from the Crossroads ministry today. And so um, how many, how, yeah, come on, come on, come on. Which means, in turn, how long, um, how long for sobriety and, and clean? Seven months. Seven months? Yeah. Seven months clean, man. That's, just, that's so cool. That's so cool. And it's all because of one person, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 So what we wanted to do for you guys um, is we wanted to honor you. And the greatest gift that we could ever give you is um, God's word. And so we wanted to give you guys um, some study Bibles for you guys to go forth and continue in this. And as we sung in the song in the beginning... Um, it's day by day, and we celebrate progression, not perfection here at Westside, because Jesus was perfect for us. And so we wanted to take a moment to celebrate, love you guys, but we also want to pray for you guys as well. So just as an act of faith, could you reach out your hand this direction, just as a symbol of prayer? And so, God, we thank you so much for these men, and God, for the journey that you've brought them through. And um, God, they have been through the valley of the shadow of death. And they know that it is because of only one person, Jesus Christ, who has brought them through this. And God, we thank you for them, that they are known, that their names are known, that they're loved, that they're cared for, that they have relationships here at this church. And God, may we be guardrails for them going forward because we all need each other in community and we all need Jesus. And so God, we pray against the enemy, his workers and his effects because we know that death has been defeated and that there's nothing that can stop the person of Jesus Christ and that these these men were created for a purpose and that they will go forth and that they will expand the kingdom of God with the Holy Spirit in their hearts, with the Bible in their hand, and with the gospel on their lips. And so, God, we pray that you would keep them and that your face would forever shine upon them. And we pray this in the mighty and the precious name of Jesus Christ. Can you guys give these guys a round of applause this morning, please? Amen. 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 Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Proud of you, man. Love you guys. Love you, brother. Love you too, man. Proud of y'all. Proud of y'all. You can be seated and grab your Bible as Pastor Tyler leads us in the reading of our text today. Well, you heard it. Grab a Bible. There's a paperback Bible in the pew back in front of you. If you don't have one, grab that. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you. Uh, Take it, mark it up, and write the name of Jesus all on the margins of that Bible because it's all about Jesus. Amen. Go to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 21 through 26. When you get there, look up at me and say, glory to God forever. All right, sounds like most of us are there. Upon the conclusion of the reading of the text, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and you respond. Amen. Have your eyes on Scripture. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Well, amen. Um, we are in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we are looking at Jesus' words and what he said, and as you can tell, we're here today with the topic of dealing with murder and, and anger. But um, I want to say something really quick as we preview next week, um, just to give parents and everybody sort of a heads up. Um, Jesus speaks next week about the idea of lust. And so um, we have kids side at West Side, and so I'm going to be teaching on sex. And that's not like a bad word in church because that's actually our thing. God invented that. I don't want to like blow your mind. Like, you know what I mean? But when he created Adam and Eve, he didn't walk away and come back and go, what's that? Like, I, God invented that. And so we're going to talk about that um, next week. And I'm just asking you this, and I'm just asking this for parents. Um, if you have a middle schooler or a high schooler, um, I would hope that, that you would trust your church and me as your pastor that they would hear and learn about these things in church um, because they are going to hear about them and they are going to learn about them. And I would rather you not let your kid learn about it in a locker room or in a hallway at a school, but rather that you would have the word of God um, guide them in that. And so we'll be putting a video out on our social media just reminding that. And so I'm very excited about that. We'll probably double our attendance because we're talking about sex next week. And so... Um, <laughs> Uh, this week we're talking about anger, and Jesus um, introduces um, a saying and a phrase. And if you heard it read, um, he quotes an Old Testament passage, but then he says, but I say to you. And what theologians call this phrase is the antithesis. And what we've learned is Jesus is not pitting himself against Moses or the Old Testament. Jesus is not saying we do away with this and now I'm writing something new, but rather what Jesus is doing is giving a proper interpretation of this. And actually, um, as a good communicator, um, an antithesis you hear all the time, Aristotle um, coined the phrase, but uh, John F. Kennedy, if you remember the famous inaugural address, ask not what your country can do for you, right, but what you can do for your country, that's an antithesis. And what he's doing is he's taking a concept and placing it beside another concept and showing you how to compare and contrast it. And what's interesting in the passage is Jesus does not say in verse 21, it is written. But rather what Jesus says is, you have heard it said of old. And what he's doing is he's teaching his disciples the true way of God. And he's comparing and contrasting what the Pharisees and the Sadducees had done to God's law. And we've learned a lot about them through the series on the Sermon on the Mount. They added to God's law where they thought it wasn't clear, and then they took away from God's law when it was very clear. And John Stott, a New Testament scholar, says it this way, Because the scribes and Pharisees found the law burdensome, they tried to reduce its challenge by making its demands less demanding and its permissions more permissive. In this way, they made the law more manageable. You see, I don't think we're any different than the Pharisees, really. 
Because we love the aspects and promises of God's word when it excites us and when it sort of um, gives us what we desire. But whenever Jesus lays down a big command like repent of your sin or love your enemy, we try to sort of lessen that demand. And today, Jesus' words are very strong because Jesus equates anger with murder. Now, that's pretty profound and very provocative. And what he does in the text today is he shows us when we murder, and then he shows us sort of in a way how to murder, murder, um, if you will. And the first thing that he says is this, we murder when we are angry, when we are angry. Look at verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus says that same judgment that the Old Testament demanded of murder is the same thing that he says with anger. Now, we have to understand some words. The word murder that Jesus is using here is um, like a homicide, if you will. It's like a Quentin Tarantino film, right? This is like homicide, lifetime movie. This is murder. But the word that Jesus is using for anger here is um, like a boiling contempt for a person. Not just an action, but for an individual that you see someone and you get angry, that it literally boils up inside of you. And in Jesus' Jewish understanding, what he's saying is this. Murder actually begins and starts, um, literally the Hebrew and the Greek is in the bowels, if you will. And some of you are like, yeah, I had Taco Bell this week. I understand that, right? But it's, they understood the emotions to be like that seat. The heart is the seat of emotions, And Jesus teaches this later on in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 15, he says these words. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Jesus says, see, actually God's law and God's understanding of how God looks at us is not so much external as it is internal. And what Jesus, why Jesus equates anger with murder is what he's saying. Murder is just the outward act and display of something that was already taking place inside your heart. Well, what's confusing about this concept of anger is that it is an emotion. And actually, the emotion of anger finds its source really in God. Um, In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes this, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You confused yet? So you're like, is anger a sin? Yes, but I thought anger wasn't a sin. Yes, right? So are we clear, right? What Jesus is teaching and what Paul says in this verse is, Be angry and do not sin. And I love what Jonathan said in the video. What Jonathan was talking about, like an illustration of the bread shed, like somebody saw somebody who was hungry and a baby that was crying because their belly was empty. And a righteous anger welled up in them, and they channeled that, and they did something with that anger. The anger that Jesus is teaching here is about a person being angry with a person, contempt. And he says we murder actually when that anger begins, but it progresses. We also murder, secondly, when we are prideful. 
when we are prideful. Look at the end of verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, here's the stair step. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. The word insult there is the Greek word raka, which um, literally is sort of like, uh, it, it literally means looking down your nose at someone. So in the Old Testament, whenever it speaks of God being slow to anger, that Hebrew word um, literally means of long nose, right? So God has a long nose. I don't know, you know what I mean? But what it means is, is that God is slow, that he's patient, that he's kind. But what Jesus is contrasting here is someone who knee-jerk reaction, someone who says, you're an idiot, man. Are you kidding me right now? You're driving in your car. You see those People, oh, it's 9 a.m. I know it's early, but we got to kind of get into this and get this going. What Jesus is saying is this idea of pride is really the seat where this anger happens. And what you're doing is you elevate yourself on a pedestal because my mommy thought I was awesome, right? And everybody else, they just don't get it. 90% of my counseling sessions begin with someone blaming someone else because they did this, I had no other choice but to do this. And what they don't know what they're doing while we're sitting there is elevating themselves just in that standard. See, there's really a difference in anger and in pride. Anger says, you owe me. I am mad at you because you did blank or you didn't do blank or you're this person. And so you owe me because you took something away from me. Pride says, I owe no one. I am my own person. I owe no one anything. And Jesus says, when you begin that, and one of the telltale signs is the words that we use. We learned about this in in a series last year talking about words matter. And we said that words were literally a window into our heart. And Jesus backs that up. And he says, how can you tell that murder is already setting in your heart? And listen, this week, I wept and I cried. And as I was typing the sermon, conviction just washed over me on the level and standard that Jesus is teaching. And what he says is, it begins with these words of those people or I can't believe they did that. And what you're doing is you're pitting yourself against someone. We murder when we're angry. We murder when we're prideful. And then it really stems from this, the last thing. We murder when we are loveless. When we are loveless, Jesus again says, look in verse 22. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. But here it is. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, the word that he uses for you fool is a massive big term that literally means this. You know one. Or as one scholar said, You non-human. You treat someone as if they are an idiot and incompetent and dumb and that they are non-human to you. Oh, I cannot believe that person. And you're loveless to them. You say, Jason, that's a pretty stark contrast. Come on. Are you really serious that Jesus is saying that when we say these things, that this is really going on in our heart? 
Well, I'll lean on Tim Keller, and he says these words. What Jesus is saying here is, here is the power of your tongue. To murder means also to murder someone's reputation. But even more so, this is something you have to say to a person, correct? So to murder someone also means to murder their confidence in themselves. Because when you call somebody a moron or a fool, the only reason you're doing so is because you hope that they will believe you. Do you see the difference now? What Jesus is saying is this is not external And what we learned last week, he says that in order to be my disciple, in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness or right standing has to exceed that of the Pharisees. And they were external people. They prayed out loud. They did things so so people would see. But now Jesus is literally getting down to the heart of the issue. And he says, do you know how you know that you can know that you can know that you're my disciple? Is that you're self-reflecting about what's going on in your heart. Not about what someone else is doing, but what's going on inside your heart. Why, why is murder, this idea of homicide, and I'm not going to get into ethical discussions. We'll do that later on in the Sermon in the Mount, and I'll offend everybody. Show up that Sunday. That'll be great. What Jesus is saying about this idea of murder takes us all the way back to the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, it says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. But here's the reason. For God made man In his own image. Like, I'm sorry to break your heart, but your cat is not made in the image and likeness of God. Okay? Right? Right? I don't think cats will be in heaven. But anyway, that's a different sermon, right? No, I'm just teasing. What Jesus is showing us is that, listen, when you have contempt in your heart, and when you are angry at that person, and they're an idiot and a fool, and they need to pull themselves up by them bootstraps, and those people, and they did it again, and I'm done with that person, and I've done this so many times, what you are saying is the hostility in your heart towards that person created in the image and likeness of God is hostility towards God. Because I believe the Bible teaches the greatest and highest view of human worth and value. Like I would challenge you, if you're a non-believer and you lean on science or if you lean on ethics, where do you draw your ethics that human life has value? Because if we live in the Darwin age and the survival of the fittest and dog eat dog and man eat man, then morality really doesn't matter. And death doesn't matter. But I believe that Christianity holds the highest view of human worth and value because we're created in the image and likeness of God. And here's the essence of murder. The essence of murder is seeing human life as worthless. Is seeing human life as worthless. And what Jesus is saying is when you have contempt And when you are angry deep inside and these words start rushing out of your mouth, what you are doing and what already has taken place, not the external act, but the internal act of murder has already taken place because these emotions and this contempt towards a person created in the image and likeness of God is equal to hostility with God. So what are we to do? 
If this is the standard, listen, if we just have to let this be, this is Jesus uncensored. These are Jesus's words. What are we supposed to do? And Jesus gives us some things to do. How to murder this murder. How to kill anger literally inside of us. And the first thing is this, that you don't settle for unsettled conflict. That you don't settle for unsettled conflict. Look at what Jesus says in verse 23. So if... Now, Jesus has been doing therefores, and, and so if. The Bible's important. We make our points from the words of the text. And so what Jesus is saying is, here's the standard. So if, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Then he does another illustration. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. Literally someone who has, you have a debt with. While you were going with him to court, least your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Here's what Jesus is saying. How in the world Could you ever, like we have to understand the context. Jesus is saying the altar. They would have traveled to Jerusalem from from many days journey and they would have come once a year and they would have come and offered this big gift. This is what Jesus is talking about. And so really what Jesus is saying is this is a massive inconvenience for you, for those of you that need to reconcile relationships. Because someone's excuse would have been, we just traveled, we just went this far. Oh, Jesus, man, my week's pretty busy. The kids got the soccer thing, then the thing with the thing, and then we got the thing, and then the thing after the thing. And I just, I just don't know if I can do that this week, Jesus. That's going to be pretty busy. You know, pretty busy. And what Jesus says is you can't settle for unsettled conflict that you know that is in your life and in your relationships. Why? Because how in the world can you offer a gift to God and praise God and have anger and contempt and unsettled conflict with someone created in the image and likeness of God? Here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not allowing you to live your life in boxes. Because today's Sunday. So we're going to go to church. We're going to do the thing. I'm going to hear something. Uh, It's probably going to help me in my life. I'm not going to apply it to the fullest extent because, boof, that's tough. And that's going to inconvenience me. Then we got lunch later on this afternoon. Then we're going to Granny's house. We're going to hang out. But then Monday comes, and my boss, I tell you what, that's what. What? What? This is holistic. If I'm Lord and Savior, and if I've rose from death and conquered it and made my enemies a footstool, and I'm Lord over your life, I'm not just Lord over Sunday, but I'm Lord over Monday. If I've changed your heart, then this is going to show itself in your relationships. Listen, Christians cannot settle for unsettled conflict and the hostility that breeds and takes place, and especially if you're a covenant member here at Westside, because you are a blood-bought member. Literally, that blood is thicker than the kin of your family because you were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, and you live together, and you worship together, and you live your life in community. You cannot settle for unsettled conflict. So what do we need to do? The second thing is this. It's real motivational. Repent of your sin. 
Jesus says, verse 24, leave your gift there at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. That's how important relationships are to Jesus. Here's what Jesus is literally saying. If you're in church, right? And congratulations, you're in church today. I'm glad you did that, right? You're here. If you're in church and before you come and partake at the table, before you lift your hands in worship, or if you're in the act of lifting your hands in worship, or if you're in the act of praying, or if you're in the act of coming to the table and partaking in the elements, and you see someone there at the church that you have conflict with, stop raising your hands, don't go forward in communion, and and stop praying, and go and pray with that person. And reconcile yourself to them. First, reconcile yourself to your brother. Because the love that you have for the God above you is measured by the love by the person beside you. That's how we primarily show that we love God. That's why we read the scripture. That's why we had the catechism. How do we know that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? You love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you go. And I love how he switches the terms because before it was about you being angry and you being condemned of murder. But now he switches the roles and says, someone has an accusation against you. Interesting, right? It seems to be that the first step of following Jesus is that of humility. Because how in the world could I cast judgment upon your life until I first have recognized and understood what Jesus Christ did to pay for my sins and for my heart. We repent, we turn. That's the word there, go. I mean, like, that's massive. Literally, leave. Do you know what, you know what would tickle my heart as your pastor and as a preacher? If in the middle of my sermon or if in the middle of worship or right before you came to the tables that I saw somebody get up and leave and go outside and get on their cell phone, And say, hey, man, this week I said this, and there was murder in my heart. And I before I go in and before I do this thing, man, I gotta, I am sorry for my part. I don't know what's going on in your life and what's going on there. Like, how crazy would that be? How crazy would it be if a non-believer saw a believer do that? They would almost say, Wow, it's like you love Christ. It's like you actually love Jesus. We can't settle for unsettled conflict. We have to repent of our sin. And I know what you're saying. Jason, there's a second party involved. There's all of these things. I understand that. I deal with this every day. I know. But there's a verse that I've committed to memory that you need to commit to memory. And it's Romans 12, 18. You ready? As much as depends on you, live peacefully with all. As much as depends on when they will come and say they're sorry, then I will reconcile with them. Because some of you are waiting for an apology from your mother or from your father or from your spouse or from your child or from your friend. And listen to me, that apology will never come. But as much as depends on you, live peacefully with all. And then the next thing is this. We have to reconcile this quickly. There's an urgency here. It's a right now. It's not Monday. It's not Tuesday. It's today. Today is the best day. There's nothing wrong with today. 
There's nothing wrong with today. And what Jesus is saying is that you have to do this now. Look, look at verse 25. Come to terms quickly, quickly with your accuser. Because the thing about anger is, that's why that verse in Ephesians says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Married couples, like, I mean, this is tough for me. You don't go to bed angry. Why? Because that anger is going to sit in the heart and it's going to germinate and it's going to turn into bitterness and that bitterness is going to lead way to contempt and that contempt is going to lead way to unforgiveness. That's why Jesus says there's a time frame on this thing. Now, what reconciliation doesn't mean, reconciliation doesn't mean that it's all sunshine and rainbows. Listen, you can reconcile with someone and not work for them anymore. You can reconcile with someone and not live day-to-day life with them. What the term reconciliation means and why Jesus uses it in the second illustration is that you're making sure that your end of the debt is paid. That you've handled your end and your end of the bargain and you've seen your sin and you've understood that under God's law, what he has shown us is that we are guilty. And listen to this, the reality of the kingdom of God is seen in reconciled relationships. Oh, the reality of the rule and reign of Christ is seen in Christians that reconcile with their accusers. That's what sparked Christianity is that there, that there were these people who didn't treat people like everybody else treated people, but rather they came to them in humility and in love and in understanding and reconciled themselves. Like that's the beauty of the church, that there are divorced people who still are reconciled. That can happen. It doesn't mean that the day-to-day life is normal, but what it means is, is that you've owned your sin and understood that and understood the gravity of that. That reconciliation would be where enemies would come together and worship under the banner and the name of Jesus Christ. I was so broken this week when I looked at the news. And there's so much hostility in the world. And church, listen to me. This is not a time for us to act like the world. This is not the time for us to give up and water down the message. This is the time for the church to shine the brightest. The gospel goes forth in moments like this. And it goes forth in reconciled relationships. I'm going to end with this as the band comes up and leads us in a time of response. And I've used this illustration, but it came to me this week. And I wanted today to be short because the words are heavy. Because Jesus equates this. And as they were there at the altar, they were offering their gift and there would have been blood everywhere in the Old Testament temple. It would have been everywhere. And there on that altar, they would have seen the high priest get the animal without blemish. And they would have seen that animal placed on the altar. And they would have seen that animal's throat slit and that blood poured out. And because of God's promise and the atonement and the foreshadow of Christ, there they would have seen their own sin and it would have grieved their own heart. And they would have gone and they would have reconciled in those relationships. The gospel is here in these verses. And when I was studying and remembering and thinking about it this week, I tried to think about all of these people who've done horrible things. And in reality, there's no difference between me and them. You may recognize this man in his picture. 
This man is Timothy McVeigh. On April 19th, 1995, Timothy McVeigh parked his van filled with explosives at the Alfred Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. Timothy McVeigh murdered 168 people and wounded 600 of them, and he parked by the nursery. It took him a number of years to be tried on 168 counts of homicide, and it's the greatest terror attack since 9-11. And on June 11, 2001, he was executed. In his last words, he quoted the poem Invictus by William Henry Ernest. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole. I thank what God's may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond the place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the mints of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged to punish the scroll. I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. And when I read that and I thought about that illustration, the only difference between me and Timothy McVeigh is one of quantity, not of quality. Because in my heart has sat the same emotions. The only difference is that his was played out. What's the big idea today? The big idea is this. The anger concealed in our hearts reveals our desperate need for a Savior. God, I don't know any other way to turn than to Calvary. For it was my sin that held him there. And my voice among the mockers and the scoffers. And who are we to think that I'm not worse than anybody else? For the ground at Calvary as Spurgeon thundered from that London Baptist pulpit was that the ground at Calvary is level. And nobody stands taller and nobody stands lower, but we bow upon our knees. So today the application is this. We repent and we cry out to God for his saving grace and mercy. Who do you need to reconcile with today? Who do you need to pray with today before you partake and put your hands on the body and the blood of Christ? We don't do that until we first have made sure quickly that we are not settled with unsettled conflict. That we have understood our sin as much as depends upon us. And that we've reconciled in there. And I know what you're saying. You don't understand. I'm going to be weak in that moment. Praise be to God. Because in our weakest moment, He is made strong. You're not supposed to have it all together. This is supposed to level you. And he holds up the law and its demands and he says there's two ways to run. Run to yourself and your pride and your unconquerable soul or run to me. Run to me and let the mercy and the grace flow from you. I don't know what you need to do today, but if you're mad, I didn't name you. The Holy Spirit did. That's God moving in you because there in the moment of weakness, we find his grace. Heavenly Father, we come before you and just simply have your way with us. God, may Westside be a people. Be a people who don't look down, but we look up. We're too busy looking up at Christ. We don't have the time to look down on other people. 
And God, if your law is perfect and it is good and it shows us where we need Christ, and today in the brokenness and the concealed anger in our hearts, God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that there would be relationships reconciled today, that they would be reconciled quickly, and that people would understand the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ before we come to the table. And then when we come, we see that it is paid in full and that we move forward in grace, that you care about our hearts, not just our actions. We pray this in the mighty and in the precious and in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.